Well, hopefully that open up, opens up the lungs a little bit, get the blood flowing. Let's turn our Bibles, please, to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, we've been thinking about the superiority of the Lord Jesus in the Gospel of John, how he is unequivocally greater than all, greater than Moses and the law, greater than Elijah and all of the prophets. This afternoon, we're going to boldly try to demonstrate that he is greater than David and indeed greater than Abraham. John chapter 7, we'll come to the only two references of King David in the Gospel of John. And let's read from verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? So here's one of the three that I made reference to earlier. There was a division among them because of him. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have ye not brought him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. Then answered them to the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him, and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went unto his own house. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. So here we have a reference to David. Two references or two mentions of his name in the same verse. uh, Questioning if you will, the authority of the Lord Jesus to be that great prophet or to be the Messiah, because they clearly knew that he came from Galilee and they were questioning his origins. You know, heritage is something particularly important to the Jewish nation. It's important to all of us, of course, but in Jewish history, the way um, the uh, generations pass on, the, the importance of the kingship, The genealogy of an individual was particularly important. That's one of the reasons why we see so many of the genealogies of different individuals, and in particular of the Lord Jesus, um, here in in the Scripture. But they were now questioning his authority because they wanted someone of David's descendancy, understandably so. David was, of course, very highly revered in the mind of the Jewish person. Still commonly used name, of course, some Davids in the room, I know, Uh, but a very important name in the Jewish faith. If you were to ask them of the important kings 
if not first word out of the mouth, absolutely the first two or three would be David. Solomon, of course, in glory built the temple, so they often spoke of Solomon's temple. We heard a little bit about uh, Solomon and all of his grandeur, but yet that the, the nostalgic feature to the Jewish faith is that it was under King David that there was the greatest, if you will, empire of the Jewish faith. Not so much, or the Jewish nation, not so much because of the size of it per se. We could argue that, that Solomon had the ability to expand it a little bit more and was wealthier in that sense. But no other king united the hearts of the people the way David did. So we have a pretty big task if we have to prove that someone is greater than David. Well, let me try and do so. You know me and lists. I love lists. Like Every time, every morning I go to work in my office, I sit down, I write a list of things that have to get done. I circle the ones that I won't allow myself to go home until I get them done. It's a real great sense of, of accomplishment to cross them off the list. Well, let's think of seven things that makes David great, just like we had with Elijah, seven things. Seven things that we could argue speak to the greatness of David, but speak to us of a greater David, of David's greater son. David might have been the greatest king they had, but he is by no means the king of kings and lord of lords like our Lord Jesus. Point number one, David's ascension to the throne. How did David become the king? You know, we... I know I've spoken about this in years past, and I won't go through it in a lot of detail, but you know, the whole notion of the kingship is a challenging discussion in the nation of Israel. God had fully intended it. In fact, you go back to the book of Genesis, and there is an intimation that ultimately there was going to be a kingship. The, the scepter would not depart out of Judah. The scepter is clearly something that the, um, the king holds. Interestingly, the, the, the base root word in Hebrew for the king's scepter is the same as the shepherd's staff, which of course is not at all surprising. Um, shepherds make good kings, as we're going to see in a moment with David and of course the Lord Jesus. But here, um, David ascended the throne in a different way. Of course, the nation wanted a king for lots of reasons. They wanted a king like all the other nations. They were upset with Samuel because Samuel's sons were taking bribes which is a bit paradoxical. I mean, if they come to Samuel and say, Samuel, your sons are taking bribes, so we want to um, establish a kingship, which, of course, is establishing the problem. Because guess who takes over for the king? The king does, right? The king's son. So if the problem is sons, then you're institutionalizing the problem by establishing a kingdom. But that's another day. It's a discussion. But they had this rationale nonetheless, but I would suggest that the Lord, in fact, is one of the things we learned when Larry and I were back, and I agree with you, Larry, those conference days at Greenwood Hills uh, were tremendously formative in many of our lives. I had the privilege, actually, of going back there next month to do family camp. Our whole family are going to trudge out to, trudge out to, um, to Pennsylvania, and uh, we'll have some good nostalgic memories of uh, times past. Now, who sounds like the old man in the room? But anyway... Um, you know, we, we, we studied this beautiful notion that the Lord was fully intending to bring the, the principle of kingship and an actual kingdom, but kind of like finding out what your birthday gift is, before, your surprise birthday gift is before your birthday, it kind of ruins it a little bit, right? And so they prematurely jumped ahead and wanted a king 
not the king that God had intended for them, but the Lord was gracious and he allowed them. And he indeed anointed Saul as king. And, and he was a legitimate king, if you will, that way. Um, I would argue, as I have many times, that, that I don't think Saul was genuinely saved. But nonetheless, Saul was their king. He was anointed to be king. And he had a style that was, shall we say, rather different than that of David's ultimately. And, and Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else, which means he was bigger than everybody else, or at least had a bigger head than everybody else. There's lots of heads that you read about in First and Second Samuel. Big heads, little heads, heads caught in trees, heads cut off. There's a very good theme of headship, as I like to say. And um, so he was big, and, and that's how he fought. I mean, when your strategy is big, when you're a linebacker, right, you're not, you know, pussyfooting around. You know, you're in there, and you're handling people around you. And, and that's kind of what Saul did. And if you look really carefully at Saul's life, that's often how he did things. He surrounded himself with other big people. He used scare tactics to remind people who was the king. And whenever he was in trouble, he made sure that he got other people to come and help him at the demise of others. He was very self-serving in that way. And obviously land in trouble. And of course, the Lord had to teach him a lesson. And the Lord taught him several lessons in which he failed, literally every one of them. And one of the lessons was, if you think you're big, Saul, then I'll show you big. And he sent him Goliath. So that, I guess, is maybe the problem. If you were, I was never the big kid on the block, right? My, my brother was bigger than I am anyway, so I was never the big kid on the block. But the problem with being the big kid on the block is if a bigger kid moves into the block, right? Now, all of a sudden, all the tactics you have of bullying everybody doesn't work because they can do it to you. And there's Saul shaking like a baby, if you will, in his tent when Goliath comes to defy the armies of the living God. So, Saul had a lesson to learn. Saul had to learn that it's not about bigness, actually. So David's ascension to the throne was vastly different than Saul's. Saul's was all about might and brute strength. David's was different. David had um, a much more, if you will, gentle approach. In fact, it was so ironic. You couldn't write a story that was more interesting than this, that he was the one calming Saul. He may have been playing his in musical instruments and singing Psalm 23 to Saul while Saul was all enraged about Goliath. There he is. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Because David had experience in the Lord being his shepherd. And David was the one who was calm. And so when the time came and you see this this like a little snowball, and it's hard to think of a snowball on like when it's 95 degrees outside, but a snowball that's growing and building and building, all of a sudden... David plays a role in touching the heart of this person and then that person. And then all of a sudden, even starting in Saul's household, Saul's daughter falls in love with David. And then all of a sudden, a group of people in this one town start to fall in love with David. And then his reputation goes to other towns and eventually starts saying, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And so the insecurity of Saul builds and he starts saying, what can he have more but the kingdom, which was prophetic. And before long, literally, the nation fell in love with David. They even changed the name of their major city to, let's call it the city of David, right? Let's not call it Washington, D.C. Let's call it the city of David. And they called it the city of David instead of Jerusalem. Marvelous way that David had. David won your heart, not just by schmoozing you, not by scaring you into it, not making you do it. 
but by generally drawing your heart out. Well, I know a king just like that who has drawn my heart. Oh, I hope he's drawn yours. No one else can touch your heart the way the Lord Jesus can. The Lord Jesus wants to, if I can put it this way, ascend to the throne of your heart. And he's not going to force himself on it. This is not a salvation that is, it is forced. Oh, he will be in that way the perfect gentleman in offering himself to you. But he won't force himself on it. I'm glad. I'm glad I don't look back. I'm looking forward to hearing Larry's testimony tomorrow. I'm glad I don't look back at the time that I trusted the Lord Jesus as a young child. That that, that was the day the Lord Jesus came to me and made me believe in him. Or so-called gave me the faith to believe with. No. It's the day I chose. The day he touched my heart. And I responded. It's marvelous, really. How greater than David is here. The second uh, great thing about David was his confidence. His basic trust was in the Lord. And again, this is a contrast to Saul. Saul was confident in his own strength and his own ability, which is why when he faced Goliath, he had no more cards to play. Which is why, of course, when, when, when David saw Goliath, he didn't want to play Saul's card. You know, he didn't want to take Saul's armor. That's not what he had been accustomed to using. He said, when I, when I would take care of the bear or the, the lion or whoever would come, I used my bare hands. I used just these simple things I have. That's the same thing I'm going to do now. And that's a training ground that you and I have. We, we train in our experiences, our private experiences with the Lord are the ones that prepare us for public experiences. And as we gain confidence and trust, we learn that it's about confidence and trust in us. In fact, I would suggest that if you look at the whole of the books of First and Second Samuel, the major theme of confidence and trust is taught not even so much by David, but we go back a little bit earlier, the one who has the great lesson for confidence and trust is Hannah herself. She came to realize that her confidence and trust would be in the Lord, so much so that Hannah got the preview Right? Isn't that a big thing in L.A., you know, previews to movies that are coming out? She got the preview to the fact that the Lord was going to bring a king before anybody else knew about it. You want to study something interesting, you study things that were revealed to women before they happened. Great study. She's one of them. Of course, the Virgin Mary was another. But nonetheless, here... We, we see that what, what made David unique was not that he was such a good military fighter that he was able to take down Goliath. Really? Do you think it's all about the slingshot? <laughs> no, it was because his confidence was trusted in the Lord, which comes to my favorite verse that is associated with David. And if you've known me for more than an hour, you know that I love this verse. This is my favorite verse. I love when everyone is standing in front of Goliath, and you can, you know, if you had to... to, to recreate this you'd have all the the uh, the soldiers with chattering teeth you know uh, what are we going to do what are we going to do and then there's Saul over here with his really big head spinning around going what are we going to do what are we going to do and here walks in David you know pan to the left here's David and he says who is this uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of the living God and all of a sudden David everyone else is like shh like, come on David bring it down a notch there um he might hear you you know he's gonna he's gonna eat you up 
But to David, didn't care how big Goliath was. He could have been the size of the, the building. As far as David was concerned, nothing is bigger than his God. Fantastic, isn't it? And that's why David was able to have victory. That's why David was able to do what he did. That's why he was able to take down the big Goliath. Because his confidence wasn't in how good he could sling his slingshot. Although he was expert to expert at that, I'm sure. But that his confidence and trust was in the Lord. And that's how he gained the victory. Not by power nor by might. How did the Lord Jesus gain victory? Was it all by power and might? I mean, there's never been a question whether or not God Almighty is almighty, right? He's almighty. <laughs> you can't contest that. Was the battle at the cross all about power like, like Pilate thought it should be? Know you not that I have power over you as we commented yesterday? No. It wasn't the battle for power. It was the battle for truth. For this cause came I into the world that I may bear witness unto the truth. And the Lord Jesus has given us the victory, not just because he's the almighty God, but because he humbled himself, as Larry told us so beautifully, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Marvelous, the humility that the Lord Jesus underwent to give us the victory. Oh, how marvelous, a greater than David is here. Number three, David showed tremendous restraint. I, I was, I'm fascinated how David did this. Do you know how many occasions he could have killed Saul? Remember that one occasion when, when, when uh, uh, Saul uh, was there chasing after David and, 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 and David was able to sneak in and he, and he stole his little cruise of water and he stole his spear and then he crossed back over to the other side and said, look, Saul, I mean, I, I could have taken it. The symbol of his strength and his resources. On another occasion, he took a part of his pants off, if you will, or cut the back part of his, it was a little bit, a bit embarrassing, you know. Um, you might have thought, no, you need to pull him up a bit higher now, Saul. Uh, but he did that to demonstrate to Saul that he could have killed him. And indeed he could have, but he wouldn't. In fact, he had the man who killed Saul, if you will, despite the fact that Saul was, if you will, died by suicide. Um, he took his life because he slaughtered the Lord's anointed. Even though Saul, with all of his flaws, and all the things he did wrong, David still showed restraint. That's a marvelous feature of a leader, isn't it? Who has the power but doesn't exercise it when it's not necessary. And even after Saul died, David changed the school curriculum and made the kids sing the song, Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in Ashkelon. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. He praised Saul even in his death. That's remarkable. That's not someone who's trying to self-aggrandize. What of the Lord Jesus? Did he show restraint? We quoted the verse already today, didn't we? When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. How marvelous that the Lord Jesus, with one thought, could have blotted out the whole of the Roman army, but he didn't. He showed inordinate restraint, 
for you and for me. David was great, number four, because he had a heart after God. It was described of him many times. What does that really mean? Well, we could look at it in different ways, but basically I would look at it this way, that he was more interested in the ways, the will, and the reputation of God than his own. He's more interested in the ways, in the will, and the reputation of God than his own. Again, a contrast to Saul. Saul wanted to do this and do that for himself. David said, no, it's not about me. Remember the time when the priest came to him and said, um, uh, David, look, you know, obviously the Lord's on your side, so why don't we bring the ark with you, and why don't we want... And he says, no, no, no. No, I don't want that advantage. You put that in a neutral place. Maybe the Lord's done with me. It's not about me. It's about the Lord. It's remarkable, isn't it? Oh, again, a greater than David is here. Who could say, not my will, but thine be done. Not because the Lord Jesus' will, if you will, was distinct of that or separate or in, in conflict with the Father. And this is another very complicated discussion that I'm always sensitive to talk about because I know it sometimes ruffles feathers and I want to be careful how I say it. But we need to be very careful when we speak of the rejection of the Lord Jesus to use the right terminology. I think it's incorrect or perhaps unwise of us to say things like the father rejected the son because the act of rejection is not deliberately connected to the father as much as the Lord Jesus was rejected by his God. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Obviously quoting Psalm 22. But we need to be careful because people have taken this to an extreme. There was an author who wrote a book once that talked about the fact that the Trinity was dissolved at Calvary and start using words and phrases that, that don't mean sense. If anything, there's, a, there's almost a sense of unity of the Trinity, not to belittle the rejection of the Lord Jesus, but that he offered himself uh, uh, through, uh, through, that he offered himself to God through the Spirit, that we have to be very careful how we use that terminology. But nonetheless, when the Lord Jesus said, not my will by thine be done, it's not so much that he didn't want to go through with it. This was a voluntary, if you will, offering of himself. But that even the act of his own offering, he wanted to be seen and understood and viewed as the will of the Father being accomplished. His will was not in contradiction to that of the Father. His heart was after God more than David's. Number five, David showed tremendous humility. On a number of occasions, perhaps one of my favorite occasions, also had to do with the ark, as the ark represented the Lord. Do you remember that day when they finally got the ark back into the city of David? It had stumbled for so long and people touching it and then all the curses that came with it. But eventually the ark made it into the, into the city. And that day, they all went and celebrated. And David took off, if you will, what, what would have associated him as the king. And he was down to his, just to illustrate this, I'll take off my jacket. I mean, that's the only reason why I'm taking off my jacket. <laughs> um, so so he, he, he takes off what represents him as king. And he kind of looks like everybody else now. And they danced before the Lord, and he made sure everybody had something to eat and something to drink. And sadly, when he came home, he got in trouble, right? His wife, Saul's daughter, right? 
daughter, be careful of those daughters and their fathers, right? Um, she was a bit of the chip off the old block because she got upset with him. Oh, how glorious was the king today out there exposing himself to everybody. I mean, that didn't go over very well when she was having, you know, tea with her girlfriends at the, uh, you know, David, the King David Golf and Country Club because um, they were upset that, uh, did, you hear, did you hear about the king? Ooh, he took off his robes and he went and he talked to the normal people. And, and David uncharacteristically got a little bit upset with her. It wasn't just a question of getting upset. It's what he said. He made it very clear that they were doing this unto the Lord. And so he said, look, in, when it comes to me in the ark, I'm not a king. He says, I will base myself in my own sight, is literally what he meant. Is really what the phrase says. That I'm willing, I am just a commoner like everybody else when we come to be in front of the ark. In the presence of God. Isn't that remarkable? Really, that's what we all are. That's why there's no hierarchy, if you will, in the church of God. Yes, we have elders. But there isn't this strata of hierarchy that I'm way up here and the laity people are way down there. Oh, how David, that day, he was not viewed as the king. He was viewed as someone else gathering around the ark. Well, do you know someone else who took off his kingly robe? Who humbled himself and came down to be with the common people? Oh, I'm so thankful for that. Had the Lord Jesus not come here. Had the Lord Jesus not humbled himself, you and I would have no hope. A greater than David is here. Number six, David was a great man of prayer. Time is going quick, so I'll just mention the three specific prayers that I would suggest to you give us credence to the greatness of David. Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel um, 7, when he prayed that he wanted to build the Lord a house. Remember, he was sitting in his, his, his mansion one day, and he said, it's not really fair, Lord. I live in a house, and you live in a tent. Lord, I'm going to build you a house. And the Lord comes back to him and says, no, I'm going to build you a house. No, 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 Lord, I want to build you a house. No, no, David, I want to build you. Have you ever seen two men, two men standing at the door after you? No, really, after, no, I insist. After you, like one of you walked through the door finally, right? Um, the same kind of concept. The, Lord, the David just felt so bound to build the Lord a house. But the Lord eventually said to him, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. It's remarkable how often that happens in the life of the believer. You want to do something great for God, and he ends up doing something greater for you. And so David comes to the Lord and says, I want to build you a house. The Lord says, no, I'm going to build you a house, and I'm going to give you a son. He'll build me that house. And yes, he was talking about Solomon, but he was talking about a lot more than Solomon. Because he gave him an understanding that out of David would indeed come the king of kings and lord of lords. And David, it says, sat before the Lord and poured his heart out. Oh, Lord, do as thou hast said. Frequently quoted that verse to say, when was the last time you sat in the presence of the Lord and just bubbled over with enjoyment of what God is doing in your life? He prayed when he sought forgiveness after his failure. And it was real. They weren't crocodile tears. Who of us cannot attest to our own failure? Thankfully, we have a God who's faithful 
and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, we don't just come to the Lord for salvation and repentance. We come back time and time again, do we not? And here, David, you hardly think it's the same David after 2 Samuel 11. You almost wish the chapter wasn't there. That's the same David. And thirdly, he prayed after he went to number the people in, in, uh, in 2 Samuel 24 when he prayed on uh, confessing his sin again and just seeking the mercy of God. Lord, please just give us the least punishment possible. And what I like about that prayer is, is he cared so much for the people. He was so interested in their welfare. It makes me think a little bit, although in a different way, it brings me to John 17 and the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. You know, one of the other themes we haven't even touched on that you could think of as the superiority of Christ in the Gospel of John, there's this beautiful uh, imagery of the church being a gift of the Father to the Son. Those whom thou hast given me. And there we see, oh yes, David loved his people. That's why from the start he ascended to the throne. He cared for them in ways that were remarkable for a king. But let me suggest that we have a king who cares about us even all the more. You read that high priestly prayer sometime in the next uh, few days in John 17 and appreciate how treasured you are to the heart of the Lord Jesus. Finally, a seventh feature about David, maybe not a great feature, but a real feature, is his failure. He failed. And we know the sordid events of that chapter. Not only did he commit adultery, not only was he not out on the field, he had the woman's husband essentially murdered and, and you know, adding cherry on top of the icing on top of the cake, he actually gave to him the letter that was going to, to punish him and kill him in the very hands of the man himself. He trusted him so much to not open and look at it that he handed this man his own death sentence. It's a tragic story. Well, let me reassure you that we have a king who can never fail. Not once, not ever. Don't you want that? I mean, we have great leaders, people we put our confidence and trust in, people we love, people who minister the word of God to us, our elders, family members, people that we care deeply about and we trust, but we all know that we're all cut of the same cloth. We all have that predisposition to failing. I'm so thankful. I have a king that will never fail. Maybe one or two of you are convinced that greater than David is here. He's not any king. He's king of kings and lord of lords. Turn over to John chapter 8. We'll just leave you with a few thoughts to think about on your own about Abraham. We won't read them all, but I do think this is important because Abraham is the second most referenced individual in the Gospel of John. 
We mentioned the several references to Moses. Abraham is mentioned 11 times. We're obviously not going to read all 11. But let's read a few verses here in John 8, starting at verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. I don't know what history book they were reading. I don't know what, you know, in medicine we would call this delusional, right? We were never, are you kidding me? The story of your, your, your history is the story of bondage. But nonetheless, they said we've been in bondage to no man. Um, How sayest thou ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. And if the son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know ye are of Abraham's seed. Remember, Abraham is going to be introduced here by the Lord Jesus himself to prove to us that he's greater. But ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. Then answered and said unto him, they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Because, of course, the Lord was intimating that somebody else was their father in just a moment, a moment ago. Jesus said to them, if ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man which hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. Then said unto him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God." I suspect that that was not particularly well received. They answered, then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil. Boy, they, they put two things together. Not only was he he's worse than a Samaritan, that they, they figure he must be demon-possessed to say something like this. Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and ye do dishonor me, and I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, now we know thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead. And the prophets, and thou sayest, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste death. Is the question planted or what? I mean, is this leading the witness, your honor, or what? Right? Remember, we're in a court of law here and you're the jury. I mean, is this not leading the witness? Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? I couldn't have planted a better sentence. And the prophets are dead. Who makest thou thyself? And listen to these beautiful words. Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say, I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his saying, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. 
And he saw it and was glad. And then the Jews said unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to cast in them, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. I mean, for the sheer drama of the story, I could read that to you 20 times while you'd get bored, but I'd love it. I, just could, I can read the story over and over again. The, thought, the thoughts the Lord Jesus brings, the depth to which he judges them but offers them a way out, the clarity with which he makes it unbelievably clear that he is greater than Abraham. And culminating in that fantastic sentence, we know the I am statements of the Lord. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the water of life. Here he is. Before Abraham was, I am. He's elevating himself. He is clearly making a reference to the I am that I am statement that was given to Moses. He's clearly placing himself above time. If Abraham and all the prophets are bound by time, like a flowing river, you know, you think of Daniel's vision, where he saw that man that stood above the river. It's a critical piece because there is only one person who stands above the river of time. All of you, we're all floating around in our little boats here, going down our canoes. There's only one who stands above time, and that's the Lord Jesus. And so he says, before Abraham was, I am. Makes it clear that he's above time. And it so incensed them that they picked up those stones. But graciously, he disappeared in their midst. It doesn't happen often in the life of Lord Jesus, but it happens a few times where they were ready to kill him and he just passed through their midst. The perhaps most striking one was again when he read from their own scriptures from the prophet Isaiah and said, the Lord hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, remember? And he stopped and closed the book and said, this day has the prophecy been fulfilled? And they were just outside overlooking the, the valley of Armageddon actually. And they wanted to throw him headlong into the valley, but he passed through their midst as he did here. This is a very bold statement of the Lord Jesus. And it built up, as I say, culminating in that before Abraham was, I am. You know how many things we could say about Abraham? Several things. Let me just limit it to three. Three great things about Abraham and how we see clearly out of this text and of the whole of the book that the Lord Jesus is greater. I would argue that Abraham, of course, as the one who they view as the very father of their nation, arguably the the most important figure in Jewish history, was great because of his obedience, fellowship, and faith. His obedience. We think of Abraham as the one who obeyed when he knew not a lot of things. Particular, number one, he didn't know where he was going. Remember the Lord said, call out of the earth of the Chaldees. And it says, and he went up. Not knowing whether he went. Like, I'm a bit obsessed with my GPS, right? Like, I want to know where I'm going, right? When I was trying to negotiate my way back and forth from Beverly Hills, I was, you know, I've got, I've got to know when I'm going to be turning left, when I'm turning right. You know, the GPS was built for people like myself. In 0.2 miles, please turn left. I'm like, I, I've got to know, and I like that overview function where you can see exactly where the start line is and the finish line. I'm not, I'm not really good for unpredictable moments, Right? Here's Abraham out of the earth of the Chaldees, and the Lord says, I want you to go. Okay. He didn't know where he was going, but he obeyed. 
Do you know sometimes the Lord might call you to go and you don't know exactly where you're going, but he wants you to go? Let me give you a hint. Go. He obeyed when he didn't know how. How is the Lord going to give him a son? You know, he wasn't a biology major at the University of Ur, but um, he probably figured out that at his age, he wasn't going to get a son. But God made a promise to him. He was the son of promise. You know, sometimes God asks you to obey. and You don't know how he's going to do it. He's going to do it. And thirdly, and maybe most challenging, he obeyed when he didn't know where, when he didn't know how, when he didn't know why. After all this miracle, he says, now I want, to take your, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. But, excuse me, you and I would, at least I would, protest that. I, you've done all this for what? Like, why would you do this now? Like, isn't this the worst time to do this? But what does it say of Abraham? He rose up early that morning, and he went up and took his son. There's beautiful uh, pictures in that story of the Lord Jesus, of course. So Abraham was a man of obedience. As we mentioned the other night or last night, that sometimes we fail in our strengths, and there was a time when he partially obeyed. But let's think of just of his obedience today. Well, again, I would argue that the Lord Jesus was greater. Why? The Lord Jesus obeyed. When he knew where he was going, he set his face of flint towards Jerusalem, didn't turn to the right nor the left. He obeyed when he knew how he would be treated. Oh, how they treated him. Almost indescribable. And perhaps, again, most importantly, he obeyed when he knew why he would suffer. You want to know why? Just look around the room. It's for me. It's for you. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus obeying there that day at Calvary with you on his mind? That's exactly what he did. Well, Abraham was not just a man of obedience. He was a man of great fellowship. In fact, he so often defines it to us. I already mentioned earlier that you know he never really owned a piece of real estate and when the division was made between he and Lot, the Lord said to him, Abraham, lift up thine eyes and see all the area around you. It's all. It's all going to be yours. But he never really owned it. He plopped himself down there in Hebron, a place that literally, the word literally means fellowship. Go figure. And um, he showed to us that fellowship with the Lord is better than fellowship with the world. Isn't that true? Who, not only was his life better, not only did he have a personal visitation from the Lord Jesus, I mean, that makes the list complete already, but interestingly, he had the greater influence in the world. Now, it's not to say that we remove ourselves and extricate ourselves from the world and live in a convent, but when we're in close fellowship with the Lord, we have more influence positively for the Lord than when we're fellowshipping with the world. I mean, it vexed Lot's righteous soul to be there, but he didn't exactly have a positive influence in the city, did he? Abraham is the one who almost stayed the arm of God. In fact, God called him his friend. You talk about fellowship. 
You know when something really great happens to you or possibly even really horrible happens to you? What's the first thing you want to do? You want to tell someone. You don't just go and tell anybody. You tell the closest person to you. Something interesting happens. I want to get on the phone and call Heather. It's my natural reaction. Well, here the Lord's like, well, how can I go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah without telling my friend Abraham? I'd like to be on that short list, right? And so, so Abraham says, Lord, well, if there were 50, and he tried to advocate for the city. And even at then, he was the one that previously, of course, even had rescued them. You know, they came, they were in trouble. The five kings of the north came and took them away. Who comes to the rescue? Uncle Abraham. He didn't want anything from them. He was more interested in another king. He was interested in the king Melchizedek, whom he met. And there the world offered all these great things to Lot. The world offered all these great things to Abraham. But you know what Abraham took? Nothing. Why? Because he had already taken something from another king. Go back and read the story when you have a moment. He had already taken two things from Melchizedek. Bread and wine. First time those two things are used together. You taste of the bread and wine of the Lord Jesus you realize that fellowship with the Lord supersedes any fellowship with the world. And so he was a great man of fellowship. But despite all that greatness, did he not look, as Larry already mentioned too, did he not look ahead to a city whose builder and maker is God? Yes, Abraham was great, but the Lord Jesus said himself, he rejoiced to see my day. There is no doubt. That there was one who was greater than Abraham. Even Abraham recognized as he paid tithes to Melchizedek. You pay tithes to the one who's greater than you. He recognized that Melchizedek was superior to himself. Our Melchizedek is greater than all. And Abraham rejoiced to see the Lord Jesus day. Because before Abraham was, I am. We have a greater than Abraham. And finally, I would say that Abraham was great because of his obedience, because of his fellowship, and because of his faith. In fact, that's referenced, his faith is referenced more in the New Testament than anyone else's. His faith was accounted unto him for righteousness. And we see that repeatedly used in different contexts, in different books, to illustrate the critical nature of the fact that Abraham was saved, if you will, in the same way you and I are saved. By faith. And his faith in Christ, if you will, preceded the cross. Our faith, of course, comes after the cross. And how thankful we are that, as the Lord Jesus said when he was referencing the greatness of even John the Baptist, that all of those saved prior to Christ, they're not complete without us. That we have a privileged position that they don't quite have. What they had in part, yes, they were genuinely saved. We have in full being sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. And I am so thankful that although Abraham's 2,000 years that side of the cross, we find ourselves 2,000 years this side of the cross. And we have a connection to the Lord that Abraham dreamed of. That he looked ahead and saw that city, that city that was so beautifully described to us when we think of the book of Revelation. But it's a city designed, if you will, for us. You and I are going to be participants of. Now, it's not to say that you sit here and say, all right, I'm waiting. 
No. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Because I'm not rejoicing now, right? That's the verse that doesn't get spoken very much. But um, we have a hope that gives us joy today. It's not the hope of just getting something in the future. It's the genuine hope of having it here today. Well, I hope I've convinced you also that Abraham was a great man, did great things for God. We can learn a lot of his obedience. We can learn a lot of his fellowship, and we can learn a lot about his faith. But we have one who's greater. We have one who's the author and finisher of faith. Let's pray. Father, we are very thankful, as always, to gather with the Lord's people. We're grateful for the patience of thy people to listen to us, to allow, despite the weakness of the vessel, Allow the Spirit of God to teach us more about the Lord Jesus. Father, we're so thankful that he's greater than all. We're so thankful that we know him. We're thankful that he loves us, loves us more than David ever could. That he leads us more than Moses ever could. Father, we're thankful that the Lord Jesus is so real to us. I pray earnestly that everybody in this room would know him, that their enjoyment and appreciation of him would be deepened today that our lives would show that and manifest that in everything we say and do. Bless us, Father. Give us a good time with the young people tonight. Give people journeying mercies for those who have to travel. And uh, uh, Lord willing, if we're able to gather, please bring us back together safely here tomorrow to meet around the person of the Lord Jesus. In our Savior's name we pray.